All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Ear to the Ground, followed by Jade Bells and Bamboo Pipes. But we start off today with another edition of Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Wednesday, January 16th. I'm John Van Trieste, and joining me here in the studio today, we've got Shirley Lin. Hello. And Charlie Stora. Hello, John. In just a moment, we'll be hearing about uh, the Taipei Zoo's newest additions. Then, a thank you from Japan to Taiwanese schools, and an item about how volunteers are working to save lives in Taiwan's mountains. All that coming up next. Please stick around. off today, though, uh, with some interesting figures, an interesting statistic here. More than 90% of workers in Taiwan want to change jobs after the New Year's holiday. More than 90%. Wow. That's practically 100%, isn't it? Uh, this is according to a survey done by the job bank Yes123. Uh, they released their findings on Monday. And uh, they showed that it's, well, it's not quite 100%. It's 90.7% of workers would like to change jobs after the New Year. That's not very surprising that people want to change jobs. That's a traditional time for moving on in your career in Taiwan. But uh, 90.7%. I think the biggest thing is probably a bit predictable. The biggest reason why people might want to be switching jobs. They want better pay. Uh, More than half of respondents said that uh, the pay where they are is just not satisfactory. Uh, After that, around 41% said poor company benefits. Around 33% said a lack of promotion opportunities. 31% 31% said no prospect for the company to grow, and uh, 28% said there's no way for them to grow their talents. So uh, we have a lot of negative Nancys here, I guess, but uh, uh, yeah. And we'll have a round of musical chairs then after after Chinese New Year. Well, they're not just we'll talking the about survey, it Well, the same survey next year. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it? right. It's a never-ending cycle. They are Recycle just talking story. about it, though. It's, it's more than just talk. Uh, 65% are already looking, and... Uh, a fair number of people are even considering moving abroad. Uh, 84.6% actually. So that's really that's going to add a lot to Taiwan's brain drain if people actually go through with this. Mm. Um, and the reason is because, again, uh, be- better opportunities for pay. That's the main motivating factor yeah. there. Yeah. So um, it's not, it's mostly doom and gloom, but not entirely. Uh, I mean, people are expecting an increase of what they're asking for is around 1,100 US dollars on average. I think that's the monthly salary. And that's the highest it's been, you know, the demand for high wages uh, since 2009. Mm. So people just are really, I guess, feel the confidence to really ask for it uh, more than ever before. So that's, you know, 6.6% more than they were asking for last year when they did this survey. Uh, I guess people are just fed up. But like I said, uh, because of the U.S.-China trade war, uh, a spokesperson for this job bank says that some people, some businesses are looking to come back to Taiwan to set up factories. 
there's better opportunities for tourist-related industries, it looks like here, because of travel subsidies. And wages have been rising, mainly due to increases in the, in the minimum wage here in, yeah. in, in the past, but still not enough for most people. So uh, I guess we'll see what people actually decide to do once the New Year holiday is over. Let's meet uh, the latest additions to the Taipei Zoo's collection. Now, I'm a bit surprised by this. I thought that we already had these birds here. I, I don't want to give too much away, but... Okay. The, what, well, first of all, what kind of animal is it? We're talking about black-faced spoonbills, and they are migrant birds, and uh, actually we welcome them uh, almost, you know, around this time of year, is it? Or actually, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, you know, every year from uh, other places. Yeah. But uh, we're talking about four just four okay. black-faced spoonbills. They just took a four-hour flight operated by China Airlines, one of our state airlines, and um, arrived from Tokyo just Monday afternoon. And so after some quarantine time period, uh, the public will get to see these four uh, black-faced spoonbills. They originally uh, uh, were sent by the Tama Zoological Park, which is Japan's biggest zoo, and also the first one to preserve black-faced spoonbills as part of an initiative to create satellite communities of these birds in the region. Mm. The program aims to prevent shrinkage or even extinction of these birds um, due to habitat changes or even the possible spread of disease in, a, a, in one particular, you know, a single territory. So this collaboration between the Taipei Zoo and Tama Zoological Park began in 2009 when a professor from Korea uh, University in Japan in Japan, learned the story about the black-faced spoonbill that we once had at Taipei Zoo, nicknamed Happy. Yeah, so Happy was found injured at a farm in Yilan back in 2002. Now, even though it got a lot of treatments and everything, it, was, it lost the ability to fly. And so the zoo took him in, and, um, and then a Japanese professor heard about its story. So a year later, Happy moved to Japan and became part of this uh, preservation project created by Tama, right, the, the, the park. And Happy was given a new nickname. The new nickname was Taipei, oh. <laughs> uh, given That's, by the Japanese staff. Uh, they might have found something a bit catchier, but okay. How about Tappy? Right. Tappy. Just, there you go. Taipei Happy. Tappy. There you go. Oh, yeah, right. They just want to remember us, you know, so they said, <laughs> just nice. call it Taipei. Um, in 2013, it successfully bred baby black-faced spoonbills with a female at the park. Okay. So among the four new immigrants, the After youngest one... After which his one, name was changed back to Happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. The youngest one among the four is actually Happy's offspring. Okay, so it's, they're coming, it's another form of migration, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Hmm. So this That's is cool. really cool. Comes full circle then. Uh-huh. There's, there's an irony here about, like, um, you know, birds which fly from Japan to Taiwan anyway. Right. Being shoved on a flight on a oh, China yes, yeah. Airlines <laughs> flight <laughs> to come Well, that's here. what I was going to say. <laughs> these, birds, these birds, like, they winter in Taiwan or they yes. stop off in Taiwan if they're flying further, even yeah. further south often. Hmm. I mean, it's... The, the idea of having migratory birds in a zoo, though. I mean, yeah, they, they have, to have an indoor enclosure because their instinct is to fly back to Japan yeah. when yeah. the winter's over, right? I, I don't know. I wouldn't be that happy if I, I, you know, if I was in that enclosure. I was just thinking that now I get to see them more close up. That's what mm. I thought. But, well, I mean, they know. do appear, and I think there are a lot of them go down to the southwest around Taina, and that's where yeah, they're and most like the coastal yes, wetlands yes, yeah, around right. the wetlands there. It's good habitat for them. But I did interview oh, someone... Yeah. 
a while ago from uh, one of the conservation centers that works with these birds, and they said that they do occasionally pop up around Taipei, so it's not unlikely you'd see them if you're yeah. a bird-watching type. Yeah, but very few, I guess, yeah. I don't know. Well, mm. I guess, it, again, they probably need to have some sort of netting to keep them from <laughs> flying off again. Fly off but, again, uh, we yeah. Do, it's, that's cool. We're going to have a, the descendants of a, an old Taipei zoo. What do you call them, an alumnus? <laughs> <laughs> Coming back home. Zoo alumnus, class of 98. <laughs> Let's hear uh, how volunteers are saving lives in Taiwan's mountains. Yes, this is really one amazing task. I have to say, I'm really moved by this. A group of mountaineers, about 50 of them, they spent past three and a half years trying to equip 29 huts on mountains in Taiwan with uh, these portable altitude chambers or PACs, which is a life-saving device from from um, altitude sickness. Oh, and um, we're talking about these. You know, they, they carry these big tubs on their backs. Yeah, I said, oh, because I, I just saw a picture of them carrying these things. They look yeah, heavy. They, 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 yeah, they look heavy. And they actually enclose one of these, um, you know, these uh, uh, devices. And what it is, it's a, uh, they inflate this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's as big as, as long as a human's, you know, height. Okay. So whoever is suffering from altitude sickness, um, they would climb in there. And it's like an enclosed mm. chamber so like an to help chamber? you. That's yeah, good. yeah, I guess. I hope you have to the inflate it yourself. Is, is there like a you pump? You do, you do. Not like yeah. blowing in there, though. You're already out of yeah. breath. Oh, oh, no, you do have to pump it. And let me show okay. Oh, okay, wait. Oh, here's here's what how it looks like. That you looks know? like an enormous it's, uh, yeah, thing it's, uh, when, it's, when it's a, all blown up. Right, it's so like a no, huge drawn a face on thing. it as well. Um, there's a little two windows, you know, for, for the seeing the person, you know, uh, the person's face. I think I've seen one of these in a movie in somewhere before. Yeah. So, wow. When you think about that Lugging and them the around. fact that they sometimes they climb like upwards to, you know, get to these huts and places while putting, you know, carrying these tubs on their back. So this is like more like sheer rock face climbing. I know. This it's picture rock showing climbing, now. It's not, it's not hiking. It's, uh, it isn't. They've got, you, you know, know they, they, they really climb upwards to get to these places. They're repelling. So, oh, so when I think about that, it's just amazing why they decided to do that. Hmm. Now, there is a reason why. Um, Mr. Wang, who actually initiated this whole project, um, once he was being rescued and... Um, and so his father said that, you know, you should do something to pay back to society. And um, that, that's, that's why so he decided to... rescue the mountains? To, um, Stranded up there somewhere? Sorry? In the mountains? You yeah. So, so, um, so these devices would be left in all those huts, right? 29 of them, mm-hmm. a total, that they did, in, um, that they put up, you know, in um, three and a half years that they spent time doing. And so the very last one they um, got up there was um, they completed that in October 2018. Okay. And that, that's when they completed the whole mission. So their whole uh, mountaineering expedition is, yeah. is done. And, and it's good that none of them themselves started suffering from altitude sickness either. I know. I mean, it, at least they would have had the equipment on their backs, but... Mm-hmm. Um, one trip took them seven days walking in the rain, just, mm. just climbing in the rain, yeah. They didn't wait for the weather to change. Well, actually, they would wait for the times during the year when the weather's nice. Okay. But you never know once they got up there. It's true. You know? It is unpredictable up there. Yeah. You, so You often see on the weather reports here, you know, uh, down below, it's kind of all fine and nice. But then they're always like, well, there'll be like scattered 
crazy thunderstorms in the mountains. That's something right. you'll hear often in, in the weather reports here. So, so these devices are needed for any elevation that's like above 2,500 meters. We have a lot of mountains here. So a there, lot. There's a fair number, not where we are now, obviously. No, no. But there's a lot of uh, places not too far from us where mm-hmm. you can start getting up in that range. I think I might have suffered um, altitude sickness like 20 years ago really? when I was climbing this mountain in China. Hmm. So I didn't know what I was down with. I thought I was having a bad heart or something like that. That's causing it. I was really feeling like I was dying, seriously. Wow. Yeah. So the thing was to try to get down to a lower altitude when you suffer that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you don't, you don't have enough time to get down. Right. So you could, you know, serious cases, you could die from it. Really? Yeah. I didn't oh, yeah. know it could be fatal. Oh, yeah. And so far, uh, these uh, 29, uh, you know, PACs have saved about seven um, lives. Really? Wow. In yeah. Taiwan, in these already. past three and a half years. Fantastic. Yes. So this is a, a very serious undertaking mm-hmm. then that they're doing. This is yeah, not... they made a documentary out of it. Really? Mm. Wow. So that's why I was really moved watching hmm. that video. Well, after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that hit northern Japan, Taiwanese people stepped up and helped out, and it's something that a lot of uh, associations and groups in Japan haven't forgotten. Uh, this is a story here about a Japanese nonprofit group that's sort of paid back Taiwan by donating 23,000 picture books to first grade classrooms all over the island. Uh, this is a group called XYZ, and it's a program called Heart Heart. Uh, it's it includes, like I said, the donation of lots of different books. And on Monday, uh, a senior official in the education ministry who's in charge of international affairs, his name is Andy B., uh, met with a delegate from the group and to arrange sort of the final details of this donation. Uh, so over the years, they've given away books to all sorts of groups around the world, including uh, dis- disability institutes, orphanages, and schools. Uh, and this number, this shipment of books to Taiwan, though, is going to be the biggest since the program started, apparently. And this is, again, uh, sort of remembering the generosity of Taiwanese donors after the earthquake and tsunami of 2011. The books, one book that uh, is featured in this article is called uh, You Are the Only One, But Never a Lonely One. And uh, it's kind of a little cute book, and it's trilingual as well. So it's got Japanese. Uh, I, I believe it may have been a Japanese book originally, it looks like. But it's also got English and Mandarin, so the kids can read along as well. It's a cute little story about an ant that learns its self-worth. Uh, but that's just one example of the many books that is no. going to be donated and uh, that Taiwanese students can enjoy pretty soon. Well, that wraps up today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Shirley Lin. I'm Charlie Starr. Don't go anywhere just yet. We've got Ear to the Ground and Jade Bells and Bamboo Pipes coming your way next. My favorite sounds in the whole world is a sound you don't often hear in Taiwan. It's a sound that makes me think of my wintertime childhood in America. I'm Andrew Ryan, and in today's Year to the Ground, I bring you home with me to the U.S., where I recently visited my nieces in Boston on a freezing cold winter day. And together, we recorded the nostalgic sounds of winter. An ear to the ground. 
queen of the snow pile. What are you? Queen of the snow pile. <laughs> That's my niece, Grace. She's 11. She's standing on a tiny pile of snow in her front yard. It's only a couple of degrees Fahrenheit, negative degrees Celsius, and I'm looking for some snow sounds. I love the unmistakable sound of crunching snow underfoot. <laughs> Lest we should forget. What's your favorite part of the snow, Grace? The snow. <laughs> do you like to go sledding? I like the pile. The pile? What do you do in the pile? The snow pile. You like to stand on the pile? Yes. It looks hollow. I would be and really sled, careful. And sled on it. No, I filled it up myself. You filled up this... You made this pile yourself? Yes. For what purpose? For me to sled on. For you to sled on! Watch out! Below. <laughs> you didn't go very far. <laughs> you, is there a rope on it that I can pull you on? <laughs> no. You can give me your hand. <laughs> oh, you're gonna fall off. <laughs> oh, you're not wearing snow pants. Moments later, we realize that a light dusting of powder has begun to float down from the sky. Is it snowing? Uh, yes, yes it is. It is snowing. Don't eat the snow. Are you kidding me? I always eat the snow. Why? From the sky. You're not afraid of anything being in it. From the sky I eat it. From the sky you eat it. Like this. Um. I don't eat it like off the ground though. Oh, okay. Because you never know what's going to be in it. <laughs> What'd you say, Fiona? I said not for long. She's gonna be the snow queen. I'm the snow queen. Not her. <laughs> yeah, I That's Grace's sister, Fiona. She's eight. <laughs> All right, let her go for a little. Let her go for a little ridey ride. Fine. But I'm still queen of the snow pile and sledding and everything fun in winter. <laughs> queen of hot chocolate. Queen of hot chocolate. Are you ready? <laughs> you lost a glove. Oh, want to hear another funny sound? Yes. What is that sound? Snow and snow. She's making it snow with two blocks of snow. Okay, we have a sound of sledding. We have yeah. the sound of you rubbing snow against snow. What else? What other sounds can we make? I got a good sound. Okay. Can someone pass me a chunk of snow. Pass you a chunk of snow? Yes. There you go. Oh, she threw a snowball. <laughs> oh, this is where it starts. Ooh, that was dangerous. That's just... Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I wonder if you have any, like, ice sickles. Little ones. Oh, they can you knock, knock them against each other? Yeah. Watch this. Wow. What about this? It sounds like sand on a boogie board, but it's actually dusty snow on your sled. Or it could be dusty snow on your phone. No, not dusty <laughs> snow on my phone. All right, I think we're done with this. You Happy welcome. winter. Happy winter. Happy snow angel. Happy snow day. Oh, I forgot. I'm the queen of that too. <laughs> <laughs> the queen of that too. <laughs> All right, you guys win. <laughs> I'm going to go in and warm up. All right. You guys coming in? Yeah. Oh.
Okay. With a knee to the ground, Ooh. I'm Andrew Ryan. Close the door. Close the door. the beauty of Chinese and Taiwanese traditional music on jade bells and bamboo pipes. Hello and welcome to this week's jade bells and bamboo pipes. I'm Carlson Wong in Taipei and on today's show we're listening to the second part of the voice of the Hakka people. Over a period of more than 1,700 years, the Hakka ethnic group has gone through five great migrations on Chinese mainland. When did the Hakka people migrate to Taiwan? Historical records indicate that Ma Yixiong and Zhou Yixin, two Hakka people from Jieyang County in Guangdong province, sought to establish a branch in Taiwan of the Lintian Temple in their hometown in 1586 to worship the god San San Guo Wang. And upon landing in Lukang in Taiwan, they soon built the Linchao Temple, which still attracts many to worship San San Guo Wang in Sihu Township. To start our program today, we'll first listen to Not Meant To Be. The song comes from the album of the same title, Not Meant To Be. It was the first ever contemporary Hakka song composed more than 20 years ago by the lead singer and guitarist Wu Shengzhi of the Sunshine Chorus.
人，莫为爱情来刁难，大饼长有样。Not meant to be the first ever contemporary Hakka song composed more than 20 years ago by the lead singer and guitarist Wu Shengzhi. And next, we'll listen to a nickname given by Auntie. This song comes from the album Different People. The lyrics reflect the experience of modern people who have left home for a better life, yet retain feelings of permanent ties to their hometown, its people, and events.
Pictures and more online at english.rti.org.tw. Check it out. Check it out. And again, you're listening to Jade Bells and Bamboo Pipes. I'm Carlson Wong in Taipei, and today we feature the voice of the Hakka people. For 700 years, the Hakka people had lived in the sprawling hills and mountains of the Chinese mainland bordering the provinces of Hunan, Jiangxi, Fujian, and Guangdong before migrating to Taiwan. Upon settling in Taiwan, they had to make their homes in the hills and mountains of Taiwan in order to survive, and these areas became their principal homelands. Thus, mountains, both big and small, have become a major factor in the way the Hakka people express their feelings. According to the census in 2016, there is about 450 million Hakka people in Taiwan, making up 20% of the entire population, that's 23 million people in Taiwan. And you might be wondering how the language Hakka is different from Taiwanese or Fujian dialect or even Mandarin Chinese. Let me um, just say one word, for example, to eat in English. In Mandarin Chinese, it's 吃饭. In Cantonese, 食饭. In Hakka, Fun in Taiwanese or Fujian dialect, Japan. So you see, there is actually a difference between all these languages. And if you like to listen to the difference once again, let me do it again. To eat in English, in Mandarin Chinese, 吃饭. 
In Taiwanese, Japang. In Hakka, Sifan. In Cantonese, Sikfan. And next, another Hakka song teach you to sing mountain songs.
That song was entitled Teach You to Sing Mountain Songs. And this song is one of the prime cuts from Yan Zhiwen's first album of Hakka compositions, who is suited for singing mountain songs. The entire album consists of carefree plantation melodies that won praise from reviewers and average listeners alike. And coming up, we'll listen to Where Would You Go? The song was released on the album Whale Songs as part of the presidential campaign of Peng Minmin during the first direct popular election for Taiwanese president held in Taiwan. During both major and minor elections of recent years in Taiwan, it's been popular to use a musical theme song to encourage support for a candidate. Some directly use popular songs, others have songs custom-made. This song was custom-written for a particular candidate and political party, although it was considered a campaign song that expresses ethnic blending. The lyrics indirectly reveal the thoughts of younger Hakka people today about their own ethnic identity and future. The lyricist, composer, and singer all come from Meinong, a small urban township in southern Taiwan. considered to be a campaign song where would you go hopefully it's not too political thank you for listening hopefully you have enjoyed listening to the selection of our Hakka music today if you have any comments and suggestions please write to PO Box 123-199 Taipei Taiwan and our email address is rti at rti.org.tw and again RTI is short for radio Taiwan International. And I do look forward to your comments and suggestions. I'm Carlson Wong. Once again, thank you for listening and I'll see you next week. Until then, bye.
Thanks so much for joining us today here on Radio Taiwan International. I'm John Van Trieste, back in the studio once again with Shirley Lin and Charlie Stora, and we're here to leave you with one more thing. Taiwan has its fair share of historic monuments, uh, but new ones do occasionally pop up. They're sort of rediscovered, as it were. Today we're leaving you with a story about a new monument that's been rediscovered in the area of Xinju. That's right, John. This one, uh, well, it wasn't... It wasn't rediscovered so recently it was rediscovered about 20 years ago but before that it had been uh, uh, it had been gone forgotten about for quite a long time now what this is it's a an etched rock like okay. a, a marker stone uh, in the grounds of Erme Elementary School in Sinju County and uh, local historians are calling on uh, the authorities to recognize it as a historical artifact. Uh, this monument was set up in 1928 for the school's 30th anniversary. The school was founded in 1898, so just a short, uh, a few years there after uh, Japan took over uh, or Taiwan became like a, a Japanese colonial possession. Um, and it was set up in 1928, but it had been left untended until it was rediscovered 20 years ago. So the gap of like 70 years there. Well, we don't know when it sort of fell into uh, disuse, but it was rediscovered 20 years ago, covered in moss and weeds. Now, um, the the main guy here is a guy called Zhang Xinqi. He's a retired uh, principal of that school, the Verme Elementary School. And he said that he found a photograph of the monument at the time when he was preparing for the school's 100th anniversary. That was in 1998. So I guess he was going through some archives. Mm. He found a photo of this monument. He said, so, does anyone know anything about this, this marker stone? And uh, all the teachers said, no, mm, no, never heard of it. So he apparently went rooting around the, the school grounds for <laughs> himself. Uh, and he found the monument among bushes and weeds on a hill within the school grounds. Um, and then trying to find out some more, he says some, some older local residents told them, oh yeah, that stone, that was erected in 1928 uh, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the school, as well as commemorate its founding principal, uh, Uje Teiji, obviously Japanese, and a teacher named Song Jin, and he was memorialized because he brought more than 30 students from his own private school, sort of merged it with Ermei School, and then it was like, okay, good, we've got a school now. Right. Because <laughs> uh, they, were, they were kind of struggling for, uh, for student numbers at that time. Now, um, 
they believe that there's a platform for a flagpole and stone steps near the monument. So this suggests that the site may have been used for morning devotionals to the Japanese emperor of the time. You might have got all the class out and then got them all out along along to the stone, done their, their morning um, devotionals. Um, now, at some point, it obviously fell into disuse and it got forgotten about and it got sort of all overgrown. But the fact of that is actually one reason why it may have survived. Now, the reason, because in the meantime, so 1971, that's when Taiwan lost the UN seat, it lost the China seat to the People's Republic of China, the UN. And uh, the government in Taipei, they were a bit uh, miffed at Japan, the, Tokyo then, you know, recognizing Beijing. Um, they ordered all monuments or public facilities that portrayed, quote, the superiority of Japanese imperialism should be eliminated. So that's why you you won't find so many of these kind of, of, of markers set up during the Japanese era around Taiwan, because they were kind of a bit miffed at the time and said, no, get rid of all of them. Um, and the fact, so the fact that this one was buried in grass and weeds at the time may be the reason that it survived. So... Um, so Jang said, you know, he did, he rediscovered it uh, uh, 20 years ago. And now, well, it's it's there and it's been sort of cleaned up. The school uh, basically takes care of it. And the local Bureau of Cultural Affairs says the stone monument was inspected about 10 years ago. So it keeps an eye on it from right. time to time. Every 10 years. And the Cultural Heritage Division makes non-scheduled visits to check its condition. So there, so obviously uh, this form of principle, he's hoping, you know, let's designate it as a, as a real monument. And, uh, and, and keep it in good shape for another 90 years. Well, that's all from us today here at Radio Taiwan International's English Service. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when we present Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to Go. For now, though, from all of us here in Taipei, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.